Well, friends, we are back in the parables of Jesus again this week. This is the third of seven planned sermons in the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are going through these seven parables selected from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today we find ourselves considering the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew chapter 20. Just a few comments by way of introduction. I want to keep reiterating some things about the parables of Jesus throughout this series. The parables of Christ describe things as they really are, particularly when it comes to sin and redemption. We need to keep that in view. Jesus is often communicating redemptive historical realities in his parables. Sometimes he's painting a picture of what's been going on in Israel. Other times he is teaching us of the nature of salvation and the depth of our sin. The parables of Christ are not simply moral lessons or morality tales. They are far more than that. Jesus uses them to teach us about the very kingdom of God so that we might understand it better, the kingdom of God, because it does not work like we think it would work. That will be especially apparent in our parable today. People in Jesus' audience who were listening to his parables were to see themselves in the parables. That's important. The same is true for us. We are meant to come away thinking, seeing, knowing. He was talking about me. He was describing me. And in that sense, the parables serve as a kind of mirror for us. They, frankly, show us ourselves. They expose our hearts. They crush our self-righteousness, which we all have. They crush our ignorant and deluded notions of what we deserve from God. As I mentioned already today, we're going to consider the parables of the laborers in the vineyard. This parable, simply put, has some really sharp elbows when it comes to the nature of salvation. And when I say that, it has sharp elbows about the nature of salvation, I don't just mean justification on the front end. I mean the whole thing from start to finish. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking today at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the entirety of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. As you're making your way there, let me set the context for us, because we're kind of parachuting in to some of these parables, and I want to make sure that we're thinking about them in the flow of the gospel as the evangelists wrote them. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, we read about little children being brought to Jesus for him to lay his hands on them and pray for them. The disciples rebuke the people for doing this. From their perspective, Jesus got a lot going on. He doesn't have time for this, right? But Christ responds, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such 
belongs the kingdom of heaven. That is very similar to something that he had said at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, where he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who receive it like a child, simply trusting. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children, needy, dependent, helpless, not having a place of honor in the eyes of men. So we have that. Then there is this account of the rich young man, which begins in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Many are familiar with this text. In Matthew's account, this wealthy young man comes to Jesus and says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus again immediately pivots it and says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. In other words, no child of Adam is good. And he tells the man, keep the law, keep the commandments. The man answers, as you know, well, I've done that. Done that since my youth. So then Christ in that moment says, okay, you say you've kept the law, which means perfect love to God, perfect love to neighbor. Prove it. Prove it. Sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor and come follow me. The man can't do it. He leaves crushed, dejected. Because Jesus has just dumped the full weight of the law on that man's conscience. The law that that man thought he had kept, but had not. Jesus then begins to make comments about how it's really, really hard for wealthy people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples respond to that with trepidation. They're like, okay, if a wealthy person can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can be saved? The reason they ask that is because under the old covenant, God had promised material blessing and prosperity for obedience to the law. You obey the law, you will be blessed. You break the law, you'll be cursed. So as the disciples see a wealthy man, the assumption in Israel is that this man is wealthy because he's kept the law. He's righteous. So they say, well, if he can't enter, who can be saved? To which Christ says, well, with man, it's impossible. Impossible. But with God, it's possible. Verse 27 of Matthew 19. Peter is going to speak for the disciples as he often does. And it's clear that he's still off in his thinking. Because he replies to Jesus after he has just said all this. And he says, Look at everything that we have sacrificed for you, Lord. That guy wasn't willing to sacrifice. We're willing to sacrifice. To which Jesus makes it very clear that anything that they have sacrificed for him will be well worth it in the new heavens and the new earth. And then he goes on to say that the same is true for anyone who would ever trust in him. The blessings of salvation far outstrip anything that we have ever sacrificed for Christ. Now, with that said, then Jesus adds, chapter 19 and verse 30, put your eyes on it. But many, but many who are first will be last and the last first. 
That's a shot across the bow, beloved. Hold on to that phrase. The first will be last and the last first, because you're going to hear that again. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1, the beginning of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I'm going to read it for us now. This is the word of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. We thank God for his word today and every day. So my plan, first part, is to make a couple of significant observations from verse 1 and verse 16. Then we're going to make our way, secondly, through the parable. We're just going to walk through it. We're going to look at it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to try to understand it. We're going to unpack some of it. And then lastly, sort of third part of the message, I want to reflect on the parable. And in particular, what I hope to do is apply what Jesus is saying to all of our hearts. Because there's some good stuff here. So that's the plan. So first things first, let's note a couple of significant things pertaining to verse 1 and verse 16. Put your eyes now on chapter 20 and verse 1. Jesus begins his parable with these words, for the kingdom of heaven is like. That's something common to Christ. He says things like this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. But those are trigger words for us that indicate that Jesus is about to tell us He's about to explain to us something of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Noted, okay? Put your eyes on chapter 19 and verse 30 very quickly. We've looked at those words, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now put your eyes on verse 16 of chapter 20. These words should sound familiar. So the last will be first and the first last. So this parable 
clearly serves to explain and further unpack what Jesus means by the last will be first and the first last. So he's explaining the kingdom of heaven, and he is explaining what he means by the first will be last and the last will be first. In particular, Jesus is blowing up Peter's expectation. Chapter 19, verse 27 Jesus is blowing up Peter's expectation that the disciples' sacrifice somehow obligates God to repay them accordingly. Just note that. I want to reiterate. The kingdom of heaven does not work like we think it would work. Though we are redeemed we still often have a fallen human perspective. There are ways that we naturally think that do not help us when it comes to God's economy of salvation. To put it more pointedly, saints, not only does the kingdom of heaven not work like we think it would, If we're honest, there are many times that the kingdom of heaven does not work like we think it should. By the way, praise God that it does not. Amen. Because you know this. Romans 2, Matthew 7 kind of language. We condemn ourselves with our own standards. We can't even live up to our own standards for ourselves, let alone God's. So we need to be careful. Like, just we got to own this. We need to be very careful what we ask for. If we want God to deal with us in terms of merit at any point along the road of salvation. So I don't just mean we need to be careful and not want to deal with God in terms of merit or him deal with us on terms of merit at the beginning. While that's certainly true, that is insufficient. We would never want him to deal with us in terms of our merit at any point along the road of salvation. Okay. As I've said, as we've considered together, the parables of Jesus serve as a mirror for us. They show us ourselves as we really are, and they expose our hearts. Friends, saints, beloved, prepare for our hearts. Let us prepare for our hearts to be exposed in these words. And in saying that, you don't need to fear. The Lord is good. He is faithful. May he give grace. When your heart is exposed, as my heart has been this week and will be in this moment with you, don't bristle. Don't bristle. Marvel at God's grace that has saved a wretch like you. And consider Christ who has given you, given you the forgiveness of sins and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let's look at the parable. So that was all part one. Verse one, verse 16, trying to set the table for us here. 
We're just going to walk through this. It will help you if you have your eyes on your, on your Bible as I speak. Okay? Jesus begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, we understand this imagery. We've considered some of this already, even in the two parables prior in this series. But you're aware of how these images work in the scriptures. The master is clearly God. The vineyard is God's kingdom. The laborers are God's people, those whom he calls into his kingdom. Right? That's clear. So this is what's being represented. There's a master of a house. He goes out early in the morning. He's going to hire laborers for his vineyard. He meets laborers first thing in the morning. Remember that in this context, the work day, the day was 12 hours long. So first thing in the morning, he meets laborers. He agrees to pay them a denarius for a day's worth of work. That was a common wage for a day's worth of labor at the time. Then we see, after those laborers have been sent into the vineyard first thing, verse 3, he goes out about the third hour. So this is mid-morning. Right? He goes to the marketplace again. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. They weren't working. They had not been called by anybody to work. And he says to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, that's what I'll give you. So those go. Then he goes out again, the master does, at the sixth hour, so middle of the day. And then again at the ninth hour, afternoon, and does the same. So we would understand that means he goes and finds laborers, tells them to go into his vineyard, and whatever is right, I'll give you. Then finally, we see that in the 11th hour, so that's where we get this phrase from, right? The old school 12-hour day, the 11th hour was the very end of the day, the last hour to get work done. So in the 11th hour, the master goes out into the marketplace and still sees some people standing around and asks them, why are you just standing around idle, not doing anything? And they say, well, nobody's hired us. So then he says, you go into the vineyard too. So we have people who have worked all day. We've had people that have worked nine or so hours, six or so hours, three or so hours, and then finally people who have worked for one hour. Then, when evening comes, the owner of the vineyard grabs his foreman, the man who oversaw the operation, and he says, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, the people who have only worked one hour, up to the first, those who were called first thing in the morning. And then we see that when those who were hired in the last hour of the day come to get paid, they receive a denarius. Now that's the wage that had been agreed to by people that morning who had worked all day, right? So these people that worked in the 11th hour received a denarius. Now when those hired first, so those people that had worked all day, they're going to get paid last. They probably have seen what's gone down. They've seen that people who have worked less than them receive a denarius from the foreman. They expect that they're going to be paid more than a denarius. And on receiving their payment of a denarius, they grumble against the master of the vineyard. And they say, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Let's stop for a minute. 
Everybody take a breath. This is that mirror time moment. For any children of the late 80s, this is hammer time as well. Heart check time. All right, so seriously, every single person in this room is thinking those workers are right. Their reaction, their reaction is our reaction. Like, you, you kidding me? Like, put, your, put yourself in the place of those workers. You kidding me? Like, those, those fools work for an hour. We worked all day, busting our backs in the heat, and you're going to pay them the same thing for a little bit of work that you're going to pay us for all that? Beloved, we do not know how to not think in terms of merit. We do not know how to not think in terms of what we deserve. We always tend to think in terms of what we deserve and what others deserve or what others pointedly don't deserve from our perspective. We trade with the capital of fairness all the time. Fair, of course, as we define it, as we see fair. And so we rise up with these laborers, these laborers who had worked all day, and we say, this is not fair. The reaction that we are all having, and do not allow the fact that you know this parable well, if you do, do not allow it to remove that experience from you. Because the first time you would read something like this, your reaction is, that is not fair. The reaction that we are all having is exactly the reaction that Jesus meant to produce in his hearers. His hearers, the disciples, would have been thinking, that's not right, that's not fair. Their hearts, just like our hearts, are exposed and laid bare. Like we said earlier, it's not simply that the kingdom of heaven doesn't work like we think it would, true. It's that the kingdom of heaven doesn't work like we think it should. There's a difference. It's not just that we don't understand grace. It's that deep down in our corrupt, fallen nature, we bristle and push back against grace. This parable is a hard word for all who do not recognize their utter dependence on grace all the time. And this parable is a hard word for all who do not recognize that any good thing that comes to them from the hand of God is all of grace. In other words, this is a hard word for every single person in this room. Because here's how we tend to think. Track with me. We, and I'm talking we believers here, the saints, sinner saints like us. Here's how we think. God is the great master of heaven. Amen. 
We are his servants. Amen. Therefore, we must do our work before we can have our wages. And the more work we do, the better wages we'll get. That's how we think. Of this perspective, Martin Luther said this, quote, I myself have now preached the gospel nearly 20 years and have been exercised in the same daily by reading and writing so that I may well seem to be rid of this wicked opinion. Yet, I still feel this old filth cleave to my heart whereby it comes to pass that I would willingly have so to do with God that I would bring something with myself because of which he should give me his grace, close quote. The problem, beloved, with our way of thinking is that grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. It cannot be earned. It can only be given freely. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is realized through mercy and grace on account of Jesus Christ. Mercy meaning we do not get what we deserve. That is wrath, punishment, judgment, justice. Why is it that we get mercy? Because Christ has taken justice and judgment and wrath in our place. The kingdom of heaven is realized through mercy and grace on account of Jesus Christ. Grace meaning being given what we don't deserve. Namely righteousness and forgiveness and inheritance, adoption, eternal life and blessedness. Why is it that we're given those things? How is it that we're given those things by a just God? Because we have been united to Christ, who was righteous for us, who has secured this inheritance for us, who got up from the dead to bring about, to bring with him the new heavens and the new earth, and we are united to him, and therefore everything that's his is ours. Put your eyes on verse 13. The master is going to reply to one of the workers who's grumbling. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? He's making it plain that there's no injustice here. There's no injustice here. I'm honoring the agreement that we made this morning. I'm not doing you wrong. Verse 14, he goes on. He says to this worker who's grumbling, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. The emphasis here is on the fact that the master is giving to the workers. I choose to give to the last one just as I choose to give to you. The analogy, saints, is one of grace and gift, not one of merit and wage. Something that can be rightly observed at this point is this. 
The master of the house is the one who goes out and gets the workers. The master of the house goes to them and hires them. He goes to them and says, go into the vineyard. He calls them into his vineyard, right? See, God seeks and finds and saves the lost and calls them into his kingdom. And the workers, that's us, right? God's people called into his kingdom, called into his vineyard. What were we doing? Just like these people, we're standing idly in the marketplace. Nothing of value to do. If the master had not gone and called these workers, they would have wasted their entire day standing idly in the marketplace, doing nothing of value. And so, everything that these workers have is because of the master of the vineyard. Everything that these workers have is a result of the master's generosity. Let the hearer understand. Put your eyes on verse 15. The master asks a rhetorical question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The implied answer is, well, of course, yes. (laughs) You have that right to do with what you have as you please. The master, after all, is the giver of gifts from what is rightly his. Sounds familiar. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? And then he asks this question. After he asks, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Yes, you are, of course. Or, he says to this worker, do you begrudge my generosity? Now that could be rendered literally, or is your eye evil because I am good? So if you read it like that, it's the same sense, right? Do you begrudge my generosity or is your eye evil because I'm good? In other words, he's asking this worker, does my goodness seem evil to you somehow? And if so, if my goodness seems evil to you, that has everything to do with you and not me. So again, heart check, right? Does God's grace seem evil to us somehow? Do we begrudge the grace of God? Do we look at God's goodness and God's grace and bristle? Would we rather it be another way? Good questions to ponder. Which brings us to the third part of the message today, where I want to reflect on this parable together with you. I'm going to aim to apply it to our hearts. I've got three points of reflection, of application to the heart. Number one, I'm just going to say it this way. This parable is doubly offensive. I'll explain what I mean. This parable is doubly offensive in that Here's the first part of the offense to the fallen human nature. Everyone is equally justified. Everyone is equally justified. We struggle with this, as depicted here. You're telling me 
that a person who has trusted Christ at a relatively young age has then lived an entire lifetime of battling the corruption of the flesh, seeking to do good works, striving to love neighbor, giving of time and effort and energy and resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. You're telling me that person is as equally saved, is equally just in God's sight as somebody who comes to Christ late in life, having lived however they wanted for 60 years. That's what you're telling me? We don't want to build a theology, saints, on passages like the thief on the cross, right? We don't. But they're there for a reason, right? Because that man in the judgment, when he stands before Christ, Christ will say, just, just, just as he will look at everyone who has been united to him by faith and say, just. So we struggle with that part. That's the first offense to the corrupt human nature. You're telling me everybody's equally justified regardless of when and how they come to Christ and how long they have labored for him. Yes. Because it was never about what we contribute. It was always about what Christ alone has accomplished. The only way anyone stands in the judgment is to be given the very righteousness of Christ and to be absolved of guilt and forgiven of sins because their punishment has been paid, because the penalty of the law has been fulfilled by another. Okay, but here's the second part of the offense to the corrupt human nature. And this is for people, this is for us, those who are trusting Christ. We still struggle here. The reward in the kingdom of heaven will not be given to us because our sacrifice has obligated God to repay us. Okay? Here's what I mean. We think this way. I do, I get It's not how it works in the kingdom of heaven. The reward that we will get for good works done is not merit-based. It is grace-based. Our works, the best of them, are tainted with sin, which means, objectively speaking, they don't meet God's standard. Yet, God honors them. Why? He honors them because of his son. He honors them because they're done in faith in union with Christ. What's more, we are not the ones who produce these good works. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. Where does the power come from? The Spirit of Christ alone. Listen to some of these words from our confession of faith. I'm not even going to comment. They're they're so well written. They've stood the test of time. They've been around for hundreds of years. Just listen to these words. Their ability, their being the saints, their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. Noted. We cannot, even by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life from God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy Him for the debt of our former sins. When we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and are unprofitable servants. Since our good works are good, and they are good, they must proceed from his spirit. And since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's judgment. Nevertheless, 
believers are accepted through Christ and thus their good works are also accepted in him. Amen. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in his son. And so he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. So that's the offense of this parable. Everyone is equally justified and even reward, eternal reward, heavenly reward. It's not based on merit, saints. It's grace. Second reflection, application to the heart. We have a hard time with grace. We have a hard time with grace. Now, I don't mean grace plus. We do really well with grace plus. Read Galatians sometime, right? That doesn't offend anybody. Well, it does some, but it offends no one in the church. But we have a problem with pure, sheer grace. Beloved, our salvation from beginning to end, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, eternal blessedness, from beginning to end, the whole thing, is a gift. God gives it. So you ask, well, okay, but was anything accomplished? Yes. Salvation was accomplished and Jesus accomplished it. He earned it. So it's not as though nobody's ever earned this eternal blessedness. He did. He earned it. But we did not earn it. We never could earn it as fallen children of Adam. We simply receive it. We receive what Christ has done by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Literally, this is not of you. It is the gift of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave them that. And they were born of God, not themselves. My sheep hear my voice, says Christ. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, our salvation is not based on us in any way. Emphasis on any. It's not on our willing, our wanting, our working. Because, quote, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, close quote, Romans 9, 16. It doesn't depend on our working or on our godliness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We believe that God justifies ungodly people. That's the scandal of the gospel in a nutshell. 
You see, it's not merit. It's not reciprocity. It's not quid pro quo. It's grace. It's not wage. It's gift. It's not about what we deserve. It is about looking to another who has earned it for us. Jesus has accomplished it. And everything that he does, he does perfectly. Everything that he does, he does completely. And what he did in keeping the law, what he did in dying under the law to fulfill its penalty, what he did in getting up from the grave to secure our justification, what he did is applied to us through the means of faith as our whole and only righteousness. talking about us some more. It's almost like we're okay with grace to an extent on the front end. We understand grace to an extent on the front end of salvation because we believe the word of God. We were in need of regeneration. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed to be made alive. We needed resurrection. Many in the room would rejoice. We weren't just sick in need of healing. We weren't just dirty in need of cleansing, right? We were dead in need of resurrection. We needed grace. We get that. But then, for many, it's as though once we're in, once we're regenerated, we want to flip the whole thing back to an economy of merit. And now we're just collecting stars and earning cookies. We're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, who did not realize. You remember what the father said to the older brother toward the end of that parable? He said, Son, you are always with me, and everything that is mine is yours. We're like that. We don't realize that. We are so often wrong in our thinking. We get it all kinds of twisted. It is as though we think that we have worked really hard at the Christian life and thereby have validated the favor we've been shown by God. It is as though we think that our working, through our working, we can go back and retroactively vindicate God's saving of us. As though we can become the kind of people that God would have been happy to save in the first place. Beloved, it can't be done. Can't be done. It's like if you were to buy your young child, your very young child, an expensive and utterly unique gift. A gift that will bless him for the entirety of his life. A gift that will change his entire life. And upon receiving this gift, the child goes to his piggy bank and scrapes together a few quarters and gives them to you. And then spends the rest of his life trying to earn what you gave him. Now, there are two significant things that child does not understand. One, he doesn't understand that he can't come close to being able to earn this gift. He can't come close to being able to pay for it because he cannot comprehend its cost or its value. 
But then secondly, he does not understand, the child does not. He doesn't understand that you, as a loving parent, don't want him to live his life trying to earn it. You want him to live in it and to live from it, not chasing after it all of his days. How much more so when it comes to God and his gift of salvation on account of Christ? Third point of application, reflection, meditation. I hope this one hits. I'm going to say this twice because it's a sentence. A deeper understanding of the grace of Christ and the gospel leads to deeper love and greater effectiveness in the church. I'm going to say that again. A deeper understanding of the grace of Christ and the gospel leads to deeper love and greater effectiveness in the church. Think deeply about this. Debtors to grace who know that they are debtors to grace are stirred and moved to love other debtors to grace. Those who know Christ is their only hope are stirred and moved to love others who know that Christ is their only hope. There is nothing that will knit hearts together in a congregation more than a collective sense of our need of Christ. There's nothing that will knit hearts together in a congregation more than a collective sense of being debtors to the grace of God. So let's talk frankly for just a minute. Again, assess your own heart here. Mackenzie and I were doing this, thinking about ourselves and thinking for you as we were talking through this portion of the message this week. See, we tend to not deal with one another in the kind of grace that we've been considering today. We don't. We tend to deal with one another in the church based on merit. In our relationships with other people, it's as though we're not maybe consciously asking the question, but we're subconsciously at least kind of filtering through all these things. It's like, okay, well, you know, what have you done? How obedient have you been? How dedicated are you? How disciplined are you? Have you treated me the way that you should? The list goes on and on. And we deal with one another differently based upon how we would assess those things. More pointedly, here's a great irony. We want grace for ourselves, do we not? Everybody in this room wants grace. We'll even go so far as to stand on the stump and demand grace for ourselves. But at points, we're hardly willing to extend it to anybody. Grace for me, merit for you. Grace for me, grace for us, merit for everybody else. That's our MO. We all do this. 
And whenever, here's a dead giveaway, right? Whenever we do this horizontal comparison nonsense that we do, we're not thinking in terms of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because we think this way, to our shame. We think this way. I'm doing more. I'm more godly. I'm more mature. I'm the one who really gets it. And if all these other people would just get serious about Jesus, then they would see it as I see it. And they would also see that I've arrived. And we think all of that, we think all of that is because of something that we have done. So here's the thing. If we have understanding, legitimately, if we are mature, if we are godly, only God has produced that. Only God has worked that in us. And here's another thing. As we survey the scriptures, if we are mature, if we are godly, our posture should be one of patience and humility and gentleness, seeking to pull others along into what we're doing. We're not cracking whips from the back. We're pulling from the front. Let's go. Let's do this. You see, saints, the more we understand the grace of God, the more we understand the work of Christ, the more deeply we will love others, and the more effective we will be in the church. I hope that hits for you. As we conclude our time, it is worth noting, as Matthew writes his gospel, look at the passage that comes immediately after this parable. You can put your eyes on it. You can read the heading in your Bible. Jesus, mine says, Jesus foretells his death a third time. So we've just had all this stuff. The children coming to Christ, the rich young man, this parable. And then Jesus is going to go in one more time about how he's going to die. This time he goes into more detail about his humiliation. None of that is a coincidence. Christ as our substitute who suffered for us, Christ as our representative, therein lies our salvation and the salvation of every child of God from all time. And as has been said by many people, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? Nobody stands taller or higher at the foot of the cross. Everybody stands in equal need, equally bankrupt, lost and ruined by the fall. And we are all equally saved, justified, sanctified, glorified by God's grace as a gift. Your grace that brings this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Thanks be to God for his grace and for his gospel. May our hearts be filled with gratitude. May our hearts be filled with joy and with hope. Because what God has begun in grace, he will finish the same way. May our hearts be filled with love to him. 
And may our hearts be knitted together as we are heirs together of this great salvation. Let's pray.